Welcome to Navigating Change, the education podcast from Teibel, Inc. I'm Pete Wright, and we're doing something a little bit different today. A few weeks ago, Howard Teibel shared the stage with Bentley University President Gloria Larson at the Ikubo 2016 Annual Workshop in Boston in a conversation titled Building and Supporting Your Leadership Team. And it's centered on how leadership teams communicate their shared vision for success across the institution. Now, over their time on stage, a number of questions came in that they were unable to address. So afterward, the two sat down and recorded this conversation. It's both a chance to wrap up open threads, address some open questions, and reflect on the role of leadership in inspiring others to act. Before I hand it off to Howard, though, I invite you to learn more about Tybel's work in education at tybelink.com. You can subscribe to the show for free on our site by clicking the blue button and jumping on our email list. And now, Bentley University President Gloria Larson with Howard Tybel at the Ikubo Annual Workshop in Boston. Well, good morning, Gloria. How hey, are you? Howard. How are you? <laughs> I'm very good. Thank well, you. How are you? You're, uh, I'm great. And thank you again for being willing to do this post-Ikubo uh, Annual Workshop podcast. Uh, I think that what we did there was such a great way to introduce sort of what you're up to and, and have the audience listen to uh, what it is that a president sort of lives with every day. The thing that I was struck by, you know, we, we did the event, and at the end, people are coming up to us, and people are hugging you. Uh, it felt like an encounter session, <laughs> taking me back to the 60s and 70s. Uh, honestly, it was great therapy for me to be able to talk in such a candid manner with a group of people who largely come from the financial part of higher ed, but who may aspire to higher position, and I hope they all do. So yeah. it was great to be able to talk candidly about what the job's really like. That's right. And and what I also, as I was overhearing, because I was standing there, is that people were coming up to you, letting you know that they were Bentley graduates. I mean, the, the pride people have, you know, that have been here was just palpable in, in seeing them come up to you. Well, it's awesome to be at a school during a period in which literally over the last 20 years, um, I've been here almost a decade, but to watch a school that started out as a for-profit accounting school on Boylston Street in Boston, Massachusetts, Amazing. and now has 4,000 undergraduates, 1,500 grad students, and two PhD programs. And while we still at our core are a business university, we're equal parts liberal arts. And in fact, we think that's the magic of Bentley today is what we call fusion, this ability to bring to the marketplace, uh, this ability to have to hit the ground running with business skill sets and at the same time to be lifelong learners. We're yeah. producing graduates who can run the distance. Well, here is something that happened at the end too that you're going to remember this conversation is that one of the women that came up to you who said her daughter had gone there or someone in her life, and she said the number one uh, class she remembers was a philosophy class. So here it is. You've got this. You're, you're building this business school identity, and this woman's conveying that you've they, they, people are walking away with a fundamental arts and liberal arts kind of perspective, which, t which says you are really doing the balance. 
Our version of what the marketplace needs is that it's an and, not an or. Mm. Business skill sets, day one, employers have the luxury these days of wanting graduates who actually have some skill sets when it comes to reading a balance sheet. They want kids who can walk in the door and read a balance sheet. At the same time, when they think about what a full career means at a particular organization, they think in terms of the critical thinkers, those who have collaborative team building skills, um, those who are great at presentations. Um, and that's where we think the merger of business disciplines and the liberal arts really comes into play. And we also think that coming out of the global recession, um, there's had to be a reset for colleges everywhere. It's been a lot of criticism about what graduates have or don't have right. when they go into the broader marketplace. And our view has been, let's not be so narrowly focused so that it's simply the business skill sets, but let's make sure that our graduates have the complete portfolio of things they need. And employers tell us routinely, we accept at a baseline that your kids know the business disciplines right. that are They've required. They've got the finance and accounting. They've got it. They've got yeah. it. What they really look yeah. for now is the value add that comes from that full package of liberal arts too. So you're, you're just completing your ninth year. And what strikes me, knowing you and getting to know you more over time and hearing you tell your stories and seeing you interact with folks is your comfort level at being willing to not have to have it all figured out. And I, I'm actually personally curious how you maintain that mindset. Well, first and foremost, I'm still the accidental tourist when it comes to <laughs> higher education. I'm a recovering lawyer, not an academic. Yeah, you've worked so, it out of your system. <laughs> so the fact that over nine years, I've continued to find my place as kind of this odd duck in higher education. Um, only one to two percent of college presidents have my government, public policy, and legal background. That few. I didn't know that, it was that few. few. And less than 25 percent, and particularly this is true of universities, are is the seat held by a woman. So I am different than most of my counterparts. And I think I wake up every single day reminding myself what I've learned along the way, but also what I still don't know. Yeah. Uh, and I think, again, when I tell students they're lifelong, should be lifelong learners, it's a rule that I take to heart mm. myself. You know, we, we touched on it a little bit, but I know how committed you are to the, to the millennial conversation here at Bentley. And then I think about what you are as a role model for women. Talk a little bit about the convergence of millennials and being a woman and how you see sort of how you view that and, and what women, as they listen to you tell the story, uh, what things that they could be thinking about that could be helpful to them from your perspective? So there are two aspects of the question or questions that you just asked. First of all is my devotion to millennials. I do think this is the most special generation that we've seen in a very long time. And I say that coming out of a law firm practice where I used to recruit millennials for my law firm, uh, those who were in law school. And I found that this was the first generation that really integrated their thinking. Um, I call it triple bottom line thinking. They believed in profits to be sure, but they also cared in equal parts about people on our planet. And I think it's that type of integrative thinking now at a business school that I get so excited about because it means that we're graduating every year a thousand seniors and a whole slew of grad students who are going into organizations with this tri triple bottom line focus. They mm -hmm. genuinely believe that they're there to make organizations work better from mm -hmm. a shareholder perspective 
perspective and, and, a, and a client or customer perspective. But at the same time, they believe organizations, whether they're corporate or nonprofit or government, should be also lending a hand in terms of solving big, bigger social problems, societal mm-hmm. problems. And that's the that integrated part. That, that's the integrated part. That's why I get so excited yes. about my job. Yeah. Now, being a woman gives me a special set of responsibilities. And shortly after mm-hmm. I got here, um, I launched a fundraising exercise to see if I could pull, and in this case, it was $5 million to launch a center for women in business, yes. which we did five years ago. Um, and that has been really sort of, you know, something I'm passionate about because I've lived in the government, um, legal, and corporate worlds for now many years, many decades, and women's progress has really sort of slowed to a snail's pace when it gets to women achieving success above middle management Mm. in the senior uh, uh, boardroom and in the corporate suite. So to have Bentley, a standalone business university, play a role in helping to open the pathways for the very young women that were graduating every day from Bentley feels special to me in terms of the excitement and the energy I bring to my job. But at the same time, it's also about a responsibility, I feel. Mm. I do not want young women graduating today to have anything other than the very same equal opportunity than the great young men were graduating. So how has this center evolved? Because I would imagine over the number of years, you're seeing certain things about it maturing. How is the conversation and, and the work that you're doing in the Center for Business, how, how is that evolving? Well, what's exciting is over the last year um, or so, the last two years, we were able to partner with over 100 major companies in Massachusetts, mm. and really in New England, but it's mostly Massachusetts. Um, and these are household name companies from State Street to EMC to Raytheon to smaller startups and to mid-sized companies. And they're all seeking answers to the gender diversity question. How do we succeed in more meaningful ways with women. How do we develop women in equal numbers as men to stay the course? Um, How do we make sure that we do everything we can to end subliminal uh, discrimination, the unconscious bias that we all bring to the table? Um, And what we found is that there are some answers now that didn't exist even 10 or 20 years ago. So finding those answers, working with companies as well as our own students here on campus to arm them with the confidence they need to stay the course, um, we're finding that these pieces are beginning to fit together in some promising ways. So I'm excited about the center because I think it's doing great work. I still think there are miles to go. Yeah. The, the equality has not yet been achieved. We Correct. all know that from the from the wage gap to yeah. all the other problems. But having said that, um, to have Bitly play a special role as a problem solver with companies in this arena is special. And I'll tell you one of the breakthrough moments for me. Um, I come from the strike armband generation of the 60s <laughs> and 70s where Gloria Steinem was, of course, my hero. If only Gloria Steinem and I had known when I was going through law school in the late 70s um, that bringing men of goodwill to the table Mm -hmm. would help us accelerate success in this arena. Because what I'm finding today is male CEOs want to bring change when it involves increased diversity as much as we do. And Um, in the old days... It, there was, they have nothing to contribute. Exactly, exactly. And you know, in the old days, maybe they didn't. <laughs> but today, I believe we're all after the same set it's of goals. It's not that old. It's not old days. <laughs> not that far back. You know, one of the things that when we were up there talking, 
and I think about those who may be listening that were out there, there was a series of questions that we never actually got to, that we were going to quiz each other around. And I think that they're appropriate because it was really about this, you know, the, one of the topics today or at the session was related to the team and how do you cultivate a team. And one of the questions you were going to ask me and we were going to discuss was how do you set yourself up for success coming into a new team in a new organization? You know, from my perspective, and then I'd love to hear yours, I think what's so critical if you're a new team, and everybody knows this, is that you need to come in with an open mind and an open heart, really saying, you know what, I, I have things to learn here, but here's the dilemma. And this is what I tell other leaders. If all you do is spend this first six months in your, in your introduction being a phenomenal listener, you lose the opportunity to demonstrate that the other side of what's required in your, in your leadership is to sometimes have to either make tough choices or put things on the table that that you're passionate about. But if we wait too long, people around you start can easily start to misinterpret that you're one-dimensional, that you're just collaborative versus your directive. And I think that in the first six months, if you're a leader, you've got to find a way early on to have a stake in something and put that in the ground. I'm curious what you think about that. Looking back to my first year nine years ago, um, I knew with crystal clarity what I didn't know. Mm -hmm. I didn't know much at all about how higher ed really operates. I didn't understand shared governance with faculty. I didn't understand the small d democratic participatory process that every all, all questions that deserve answers involve. Didn't really understand that higher ed often operates a bit in a bubble, somewhat removed from the rest of the world. Um, and I really didn't understand the whole notion of freedom of expression and critical thinking that sort of underlies the ability of everybody to offer an opinion on campus. So I did do a listening tour um, and I used a number of senior faculty, particularly department chairs, as a kitchen cabinet early on so that I could ask a lot of questions and they could give me their great advice. One of the things I found with both my early cabinet and with faculty, uh, particularly faculty in these senior positions, was that they were more than willing to share advice with me on a regular <laughs> basis and particularly to let me know when I'd screwed up. That's Every right. tripwire I tripped, they were delighted yeah. to share. But this and was you were a, open, though, to learning. Absolutely, because, and I think it was helpful that I didn't come from higher ed. Yes. You know, I often think that it's like being a principal in a high school. If you were part of the crowd and then you grow up to be principal, there's a little bit of, why is that person principal and not me? The fact that I came in without a higher ed background per se, I knew higher ed policy, but I had never been in higher ed, I think opened the door to a willingness to work with me. But the other thing that was pure serendipity for me my first year was that we had an expired strategic plan. Mm. And what a huge opportunity to engage literally the entire campus with me directly involved, not simply listening, but being a participant myself right. in creating a five to 10 year strategic plan and, for and us. I can imagine back then if I was observing people who brought goodwill to the conversation realized, I want to help Gloria, right? They so did. in some ways, because you were open to this and you were transparent, as opposed to coming with an agenda, people worked to get to not know you, not just to get to know you, but to also say, we're going to help you understand how what we've done and where we're going. And that only builds trust. 
And the great thing about being coming from the outside was that I didn't have any preconceived notions of exactly where Bentley should go. I had a vision around Bentley's future because I understood the prior 10 to 20 year trajectory that the school had been on. But the ability to take a step back with an independent lens, I'm not sure I still have my independent <laughs> lens anymore, but that first year I did to ask, I think, what were really good questions. So why are we going in this direction? Go. What are we gonna achieve? You know, what are the things that maybe we could do differently? And it might have been heard when I would say, are there things we could do dif differently? It probably got heard in a different manner, a less critical manner than those who felt protective. That, that if people take anything away from this conversation, and I say this all the time, is we need to be willing to not presume that everyone around the table understands the why. And even if we understand the why, do we have a collective view on the why? And you have to ask. And when you do, you get the right kind of robust conversation going. You know, you can define your mission. And in higher ed, we all you know, stand behind what a glorious mission we have. And you can even have a specific vision for your school. But it's that next layer down. So what does that mean? And yes. if everybody has a totally different viewpoint about how you're going to execute on that vision, um, you're not going to get anywhere fast. That's right. And particularly in an industry that calls for a lot of process, a lot of task forces, a lot of thinking through all the permutations and combinations, having some real clarity around what are our four or five top line goals that will enable us to move forward when it comes to education, research, and student life, sort of the three legs of our chair here in many institutions uh, of higher ed. I think that's helpful. So we went from the first iteration of our 10-year strategic plan, the first five years was about a 150-page document. The second five-year plan that built off iteratively off that first five-year plan, uh, we have down to about a dozen pages. So what role did you play? Did you have to help say, listen, let's have this be a living document. Let's have this be a fraction of the size. I, wanna, I, wanna, I want us to be able to read this in 20 minutes and get the whole thing. What role did you play in, in helping shape that new way of having a strategic plan? Well, I think my role was critical because I saw how unwieldy it yes. was and how it's, the devil's in the details. And if you have a 150 right. page plan, your trustees see the document one way and they may quibble about 42 pages of the 150. Similarly, another group on campus says, well, I was behind this, but not this. If you keep it crisp and you have only a couple of things that you are putting under each heading that sort of define the universe, it all also allows you a huge amount of flexibility. You know where you're going, you exactly. have the parameters set, but it allows you, when you use the word iteratively, I think our plan is such a living document that we're revising it monthly, every six months. That's it's great. constantly That's being right. revised. So that maybe it's no longer going to be this thing expires, that this thing becomes, it keeps evolving. Trying to get away from the notion that every five years we have to all get together for you know six months um, in a retreat session exactly. and evolve it. Instead, it should be one of the things that I think Bentley has done well, and I take zero credit for this, is each of the divisions, academic affairs, but all of the administrative divisions too, every single year meet in retreat 
streets and evolve their own strategic plan document for the year that matches the omnibus plan that's right. for so it the all rolls university. Up. It all rolls up. Oh, that's fantastic that you do that. You know, one of the questions, you asked a great question that I was a bit stymied by. How do you manage for the future of the university while solving the problems of the day? And I think personally, this is everybody's problem. I don't care if you're trying to move the needle on anything. The problem today, it seems to be that there are more, not real crises, because in the, in the global scheme, there's real crises, but in the, in the, in the scheme of, of things that take our attention away from what's important, it is, it is hard to keep focused. What do you do to keep yourself centered on what's important? Well, it's true that um, I'm not immune from what I call urgent trivialities. Mm. They pop up every single week and sometimes multiple times a day. And it can be frustrating. It can be a bad use of time. I am, um, first and foremost, a pretty darn good uh, delegator. Mm. So I expect my vice presidents and my provost and my deans to do their jobs and to do them extraordinarily well and to come to me when there's a problem that can't be resolved. But by and large, they know the plans. They're going to be reporting on a regular basis how we're doing. Um, and so keeping your eye on the prize, which is how are we evolving with our strategic goals and are we, are we making progress is something that I see the whole cabinet responsible for, not just me. So that's a collective enterprise. And the urgent trivialities, I'm a fan of mostly pushing them off where they should go and having somebody else deal with those. Every once in a while, I, I'm forced to step in where a couple of folks are at loggerheads. Um, but beyond that, pretty much I'm getting better and better at saying, not my responsibility. Let me continue to be the external president, building reputation, raising money for the institution, and at the same time, to be the keeper of our strategic goals in terms of questioning regularly, how are we doing and how do we keep pushing further? And you've got to take that. You've got to take that on yourself because no one's yeah. going to give it to you, right? Well, exactly, exactly. And everyone else owns a piece of it, but not the, to the whole entity. What I'm working toward, and I hope by the time um, I eventually retire from this post to have this down, work in progress, is to have broader ownership by every member of the senior management team of yes. all the goals. Yes. Because I think when the vice president for student affairs cares as much about overall school finances and cares as much about what's happening in the academic arena, and the provost cares as much about what's happening with enrollment measures of success, uh, the students who will be in the classroom, and some of the other things that we're doing when there's this shared ownership by the entire team, that's when I think you have a truly collaborative team that really understands their roles. Yeah, and, and to do that well, people have to be willing in their own world to step back and be willing to allow things that are tangential to getting their work done today, but to say that it's going to contribute. And the only person who's in a position to be able to say this is important, uh, you can start that and then you build a groundswell of people on your team to do this. And this, this doesn't matter if it's you as the president and your cabinet or you as the financial vice president and your team. How do you get people? To, this is everybody's conversation today. How do we get greater level of ownership through the organization? And I think it has a lot to do with being willing to bring people to the table 
table and engage them in a conversation. Yeah, the siloed thing uh, uh, is yeah. rampant in most organizations. It's not just higher ed as a sector, um, but it, when you break down those silos, so I'll tell you the one thing though that I've noticed recently is that you can't have just one or two players being generous of spirit and willing to see that whole picture and willing to give, give, give if you don't have the other team members that's willing right. to do that. That's right. So it's really got to be something that's demanded of the entire right. group. And, and, and raise the bar for everybody. Raise the bar for everybody. Right? And it's not about And hold them accountable. And hold them accountable. You know, in my new philosophy that I'm trying to pay attention to, to help others and also in my team, it's not about us all getting to the same place. It's about how can we all get better. And whatever that means, because it's we're never going to be the same in our style and in our approach and the way we get things done. But we all can have an aspiration to understand what does it mean to get better. And I think that is a more reasonable expectation of the people that we're trying to be more engaged in the work is what do you need to, to be more connected? What do you need? And it's different for everybody. I just recently saw, and I'm sure a number of listeners have, have seen this too, the study that Google did of what works in a team and what doesn't work. And I think HBR um, has, Harvard Business Review has, has reported on this too. But one of the things that I think was fascinating about the findings, because everybody struggled with what is the right combination of people on your team to yes. get the best out right. of them. Um, and it's absolutely not having everybody look alike and sound alike, and because they that takes creativity out of the picture. They're never going to find the out-of-the-box solution. They're going to all have the same in-the-box right. solution. Yeah. You also can't have it be so crazy loose that um, people never get down to business and never have sort of the time parameters and the urgency behind having different perspectives. But having people of goodwill mm. who genuinely appreciate one another, actually like each other and, and you know, are sort of colleagues and sometimes friends as well, but really good colleagues who come from very different experience bases and very different perspectives. If you have that, you have this unique combination of people who yeah. could spend five minutes chit-chatting, get down to business, listen to one another, even if the perspectives are vastly yes. different from one another, and ultimately come back to the to the agreement that this is the course we're going yeah. to take. I could talk to you all day. What do you want, you know, as we wrap this up, any any final words you'd love to people to know about sort of the nature of your work or Bentley, anything you want to share? You know, um, I'm so proud uh, that I landed on this planet mm -hmm. <laughs> nine years ago because it is it has been a different planet for me uh, than anything in my prior career would have suggested. Um, but I guess my hope is that everyone, particularly in the higher ed field, takes as seriously as I think my colleagues do here about what genuine preparedness for careers mm -hmm. and lives and rewarding lives really means. One of the things we've done at Bentley is we've adopted Gallup's approach, which is gaining favor in schools, which is about how you measure success beyond the great first job. We have a 98% job in grad school placement rate, so put that aside. We're right. doing fine, yeah, and right. we have been for the last five or six years um, in a post-recession world. We care equally, even though we're a business university sending kids largely to the organizational world, we care just as much, of course, about the, them being lifelong learners with rewarding lives. We want them to be compassionate. We want service learning here to be as important as what they're learning in the classroom. All of those things together, taken together, um, which I know is the mission for all of higher ed, but I've seen 
schools become defensive in the in the um, wake of all the criticism that's been leveled against higher ed. And I'm hoping schools, and I think it's happening, will move away from being defensive and in their own um, particular manner, because each school has a different version of what's the right way to send kids into the real world, will figure out what the marketplace is requiring today and figure out how best to deliver that. That's right. That, that, that each school has a unique niche, a unique mission, although many of them overlap with other schools. And the question that is easy to get defensive around is how do we, are we best serving our students and, and how can we be better? And that's a hard conversation to put front and center because you have, it, it sometimes forces you to step back and look at maybe we gotta do things differently here. And when the train is running and you got to get to, you know, the beginning of the year, you got to get to at a particular point in the calendar, it's, it's hard to step back. So that's a really important message, I think, for all of us to keep remembering is if we're going to make any changes to have schools be even more student-centered. And here's just one idea that I would leave our listeners with that's born of some national research that Bentley commissioned several years ago that we really try to hew the line on. It's whatever your core competencies are in terms of your coursework, could be pure liberal arts, could be a business school, could be an engineering school. Make sure in addition to those core competencies that you're also um, delivering technology capabilities that meet real world exactly. needs and keeping adept with that. That every kid in your school has a chance to do at least one if not two internships. Internships Wall Street Journal is called the new first job. Every kid graduating from college today needs an internship. Employees are looking for that on their, and, and are looking for that on their resume, but also that kid is far better equipped than Lord knows I was when I That's got right. out of college. And the, the last thing I would add is make sure that you have a really robust career planning office. Mm -hmm. It is too late if kids are showing up at your sort of slapdash career office second semester senior year. Kids should know freshman year on mm -hmm. that they need to be thinking about life after college. Um, and when you put these pieces together, these are things any school of any type can do. These are great reminders. You have a career after being you're going to get out there and share this message. So thank you so much for being both at the workshop and sharing your insights and also being on this podcast. It's great work. Thank you, you, Howard. It's great to be with you. You're welcome. Mm -hmm.